0: Well, brothers and sisters, we have been hearing much from God's Word within this sermon series about confidence, and specifically, Christian confidence. With our faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God, we are even adopted as His royal children, such that we can be, and really ought to be, the most confident people on the planet. But all too often, we are not. So it takes faith, and faith, of course, requires knowledge, and knowledge that we not only know, but remember. When you forget something, it doesn't always mean that you forgot it completely. That does happen, that we forget something completely, like when you forget your neighbor's phone number and you have to look it up again. But forgetfulness also comes in the form of simply forgetting to keep in mind a piece of knowledge that is there. It remains in our mind. We're just not meditating on what we know. We're not remembering to act according to what we know and confess to believe. So the theme of confidence continues this morning, looking at Psalm 18, now at verses 46 through 48, and it's the confidence that we can have and that, really, and that we really ought to have in the resurrection. And someone might ask, well, which resurrection, Christ's or ours? The answer is yes, both. Because it's Christ's resurrection that has accomplished both of our resurrections. Wait a minute. Now there are three resurrections and two of them are our resurrections. Yes. Yes. Again, God's word speaks of Christian conversion as the matter of a resurrection. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. A sinner will not, and and, and he will not because he cannot, repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unless he is raised from the dead. And the resurrection that is conversion happens by way of Christ's resurrection for us. And this is why, by my reading, why Revelation 20, verse 6, even says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Believers are blessed and holy. We here this morning are blessed and holy as we share in the first resurrection. Now that's the resurrection of the believer by way, or or the, the resurrection of uh, the believer that many people miss. That by by the application of the resurrected life of Christ, made by the Word and Spirit of God, sinners dead in sin are born again. They They are a new creation. Indeed, they are resurrected unto repentance and saving faith. But the resurrection of the believer that is perhaps better known is the resurrection of our bodies in the end at the last day upon the return of Christ. And here, too, God's word is clear that the second resurrection is also the work of Christ, coming about by the power of Christ's resurrection. Jesus even said in his teaching, because I live, you also will live. And here is a great comfort, a great confidence for us. If we know it, And remember it. Not that we forget it altogether, but we need to know it and keep it in mind and live our lives remembering to be confident in the resurrection. So looking at verses 46 through 48, the first point is the rock of David. Verse 46 reads, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. Now, when we hear these opening words, the Lord lives, it can certainly remind us, should certainly remind us of what the women found when they came to the tomb of Jesus on on that first, first day, and of what the angels told them. First, the angels asked them that that question, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then they declared to them, the angels declared to to the women, He is not here, He has risen. Is that not the same thing? The Lord lives, wrote the psalmist in Psalm 1846. And the angels declared, He is not here, but has risen. So as we read these words, as as we sing these words in Psalm 18, certainly we can use these words to sing of the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. But is that what David first meant? Notice that it says, the Lord, the Lord in all capital letters, the Lord lives. It's, It's the name of God in the Hebrew. It's the name Yahweh, the name that means I am. But even still, we can we can still apply it to Jesus and his resurrection because Jesus himself said before Abraham was, I am. It's found in John 8 and it's one of one of his clearest claims to be God, even to be Yahweh in the flesh of man. Astounding. So we can apply it to Jesus. But there is more here on one on another level. In a less prophetic sense, we need to hear David simply declaring that his God, Yahweh, is the living God. And this is set at odds with the false gods of the nations around Israel. It's like, um, it's like Psalm 115, which says, "...of all false gods they have mouths but do not speak, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, they have noses but they, they do not smell." But not so with the Lord. To begin with, he cannot be depicted in the form of any idol because he is is too great, he is too holy, he he is infinite in all his being, and he cannot be pictured or made into any kind of image. But perhaps the most basic reason is that he is the living God. The Lord lives, exclaims David. I'll go out on a limb here, and say uh, you can argue with me afterwards, um, and say that I'm not impressed. I'm not comfortable with the expression, the title "God's Not Dead." I, I know what it's referring to. It, it it refers from the or it refers to the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, who promoted the idea that man has evolved beyond the need for any god, whether the god of the Bible or or otherwise, but perhaps. Especially in his day, he was referring to the God of the Bible. And so Nietzsche proclaimed in his philosophical writings, his theses that God is dead. Not that he thought that God ever was alive, except by the imagination of a lesser evolved mankind. But to answer the philosophy of Nietzsche and our own secular culture by saying the opposite, that God's not dead doesn't seem to say enough. Instead, Jeremiah 10, verse 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And Psalm 42 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And David in Psalm 18 exclaims, The Lord lives. And once again, Christ is brought into view as the psalmist goes on to, to write, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. God's word very often refers to God as a rock to his people, a rock for his people. And the Apostle Paul even writes of the, the rock in the wilderness through which God provided water for his people to keep them alive paul writes that rock was christ and the apostle peter writes of our lord that he is the stone that the builders rejected but has become the cornerstone but again going back to the to the mind of the psalmist david was was celebrating his triumph over the nations the salvation that he spoke of was the the, the many times his life had been spared, the many times victory had been given to him, the ultimate triumph that he had won. And remember that he is ascribing it all unto the Lord. So the common thread, if you will, through through all David's victories and, and, and forward to the salvation that God has provided us in Christ, the common thread is, is that the Lord lives And because he lives, because he is the living God, so he is a rock to his people. He is a rock for his people. He lives to bless his people. Is it too much even to say that the Lord lives for his people? Shouldn't we rather say that God lives for himself, for his own glory? He says, my glory I will give to no other. So can we say that he lives for his people? But to say as much really does bring us deeper into the the heart of God. It's all too easy for us to think to one degree or another, uh, even if ever so slightly, that yes, God blesses us, but... But he does so on the side. Uh, he, he, he does so uh, begrudgingly. He, he blesses us, but he has other things to do, too. And what we need to see is that this goes to the very heart of God, into, uh, uh, we could say, into the very being of God, that God is good, that God is filled with blessing for his people, that that it belongs to the very being and, and essence of God for him to bless his people and save them in their weakness by his great strength. David makes this connection for us that that God lives to be a blessing to his people. And we too must exalt him in this way as the God of our salvation. And here we come back to Christ. And even to John 3:16, which we heard earlier, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say God loved the world, but God so loved the world. There's a there's a superlative in that. He so loved the world that what? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So yes, there is the problem of, of perishing. And Jesus goes on to, to speak of the condemnation of God for the wicked things that, that people do. Jesus came not just to heal and to, and to feed people and, and, and to give them their best life now. No, Jesus came to deliver sinners from the condemnation of God for sin. But let's not overlook the other thing that so often gets overlooked, that he provided salvation for sinners by giving his only son. And this goes to the very heart of God, that he is so filled with goodness. He is so rich in grace. He is so ready to forgive and saved to the uttermost that he gave his only son. Everyone seems to know John 3:16, but, but have we really stopped to think about it, to, to meditate on it, to remember and not forget that John, or what John 3:16 is telling us about God. It's telling us that God lives and out of the abundance of his goodness, from the essence of his being. He has given even His Son and even His Son to live, to suffer, to die for our salvation. Next is a righteous vengeance. Verse 47 reads, The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. I think the difficulty for us here is that vengeance is... More often, it would seem to me, not a good thing. Uh, it, it comes from the same root word as revenge. Isn't vengeance or revenge the, the stuff of messy divorces or fired employees slashing tires in the parking lot, uh, the stuff of, uh, of gang warfare from Al Capone down to the modern street gangs? You hurt me, so I will dedicate myself to hurting you back. You killed one of ours, so we will kill one of yours. It was, it was said previously that we, we don't much think about the fact that David was a warrior king. We know that because that's what kings were in those days. When the time came for the temple of God to be built and David wanted to do it, God told him no. Why? Because his hands were too bloody figuratively at that time, but literally earlier in his fighting days. So is this what we should hear from David? That he ascribes unto the Lord the the cold-blooded vengeance that he took upon his enemies? I think the phrase that will help us with this is, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's first found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, and it's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, verse 19, and by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, verse 30. Even more, Psalm 94, verse 1 says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth so what we have is a is a reference to a righteous vengeance found in a righteous god there are things that are right and holy for god to be and to do but are often wrong and sinful in people Another example is the jealousy of God in in the Ten Commandments. God even says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities uh, of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So here we we have both the jealousy of God as well as the vengeance that He takes upon those who hate Him. And so both can be understood as righteousness. Righteousness. Even for sinners, jealousy can be the right response. For example, if there's unfaithfulness within marriage and a resulting jealousy. And when sin is severe, as it always is when it's against God, then vengeance is the right thing for God to take and the right thing for God to give David against his enemies. And if we take this point forward to Christ, then we must recall the cross of Christ. It has been said before that the cross was a revelation, a a setting forth of both the love of God for sinners as well as the justice of God for sin. As Jesus died, suffering under the full wrath and judgment of God for sin, so we see the justice of God that he will not shrug his shoulders, he will not sweep sin under the rug. But as Jesus is there on the cross of justice for us in our place, so, as it has already been said here this morning, so we see the love of God, the grace and the goodness of God to save rebel sinners like you and me. However, there really is another revelation in the cross. And that is the depth and the extent of sin in mankind. As Jesus' own people rejected him, even after he had healed so many, we see what sin really is and how much it earns the vengeance of God as the leaders of the people conspired to kill him, and as the people to whom Jesus had shown great love and care, as the people cried, crucify him, crucify him. And as he was crucified by the, by the, <clears throat> the wicked Romans, <clears throat> so we see the, the hatred of God, the, the hatred of sinners for God. We, we might want to say, well, well, surely Satan deserves the vengeance of God, but do people? Yes, people too, because sinners are of the devil, said Jesus himself, and we proved it when we crucified the Lord of glory. Light came into the world, but we love the darkness instead because our deeds are evil. It seems to me that the parable of the wicked tenants is perhaps the best passage to help us understand and accept the righteous vengeance of God. If you recall, it's the story of a landowner who planted a vineyard and equipped it fully. Then he rented it to, to tenants. And we must understand that this was a great blessing to the tenants because only a portion of the harvest had to be paid to the landowner. They were fully allowed to keep and and enjoy the rest as the fruit of their labors. But the tenants conspired against the landowner. They would not give him his share. They beat his messengers. They eventually even killed the son of the landowner as he was sent to collect the rent. When Jesus told this parable, he, he turned to the Pharisees and he asked them, What should the landowner do? And the Pharisees, of course, were landowners. (laughs) They were indignant. And they passed the harshest sentence against such miserable tenants. But Jesus made it clear that they themselves, the Pharisees, were the miserable tenants. Jesus told this parable against the Pharisees, but it applies to all Israel. Even more, it applies to the whole world. It's a picture of God creating a a very good creation, handing his creation over to mankind for them to work it, and and yes, to give God the thanks that is due him, but otherwise to possess it for themselves and, and to enjoy it fully. But what has man done? But seized the property of God. We have refused God even a word of thanks. We have beat his prophets, And we have even killed his son. If you ever doubt the justice of God's judgment and the righteousness of his vengeance, just invite some some worthless people into your own house. See them wreck the place. Hear them deny that you are even the owner. And watch them kill one of your family members. And if that doesn't bother you, well, then you can stand in judgment of God for His justice and His vengeance on the people of this world who only hate Him when He has been so good and so kind and is so good and so kind each and every day to all mankind. So we come to the last point, the resurrection of Christ. We heard of it already in verse 46. The Lord lives and here now in verse 48, David, he, he is still speaking of the Lord and ascribing unto the Lord what the Lord had done for him, so, so that David writes of the God who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. Here is David writing of his own rescue, his own exaltation, his own deliverance from the man of violence, but his words speak prophetically of Christ as well and of the resurrection of Christ. And yet how so? How can it be said that Christ was rescued when he went to the cross by the rejection of his own people? How can it be said that he was delivered when his enemies crucified him? And how so was he exalted when he was lifted up on the cross, there suffering and even dying. There's a verse in Hebrews five that raises the same kind of questions. Uh, Hebrews five or seven says, "In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard, but he died on the cross. These words refer to the the full life of Jesus, but they they hearken back, especially, I think, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed three times, Let this cup pass from me. Was he heard? Certainly his words were heard, but was it granted? Even as Jesus also prayed to, to his Father, Not my will, but yours be done, So he was not rescued, he was not delivered, and he went to the cross. And yet he was heard, and he was rescued out of death. He was delivered even from the grave as he was raised up in his resurrection. And he was exalted in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we must take this same perspective on our own lives. How do we make sense of, of God's word when it says uh, of God in Psalm 103 that He forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases? A day of death is coming for each of us. How can it then be said that the Lord heals all your diseases? The answer comes in the next verse of Psalm 103 which gives us the promise of the resurrection, saying also of God that he redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. In the same way, how can God's word say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, what can man do to me? What comfort is there in these words when we know increasingly, it would seem in our own day, that the whole world is against us as we are the church of Jesus Christ. What can man do to me? Every day there are Christians who are martyred, even being killed for their faith in Christ. But the promise comes by the resurrection. First, the resurrection of Christ, that going to the cross and they dying for sinners, yet he was raised up. And second, the promise comes by our resurrection in the body on the last day. Who can be against us when God will raise us up? No one finally can. What can man do to us? Nothing that will keep us from being raised up in the last day. Christians ought to be can be the most confident people on the face of the earth. When we're not, it's because we are forgetting the promise of God and the sure hope of the resurrection. It's not that we have forgotten it completely, but when we lack confidence and courage in the world, it must be that we are not thinking on the promise of God. We are not meditating on the hope of the resurrection. Whatever happens, God is directing our lives, and in the end, he will, he will raise us up. In fact, we have already been raised up to new life, our faith in Christ being the evidence. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. But we will also be raised up in the body, from death, out of the grave, in the last day. The trumpet will sound. Our Lord Jesus will give the command for us to rise. Those dead in Christ will be raised never to die again and forever to live. In a new and glorious creation. Amen. Let's pray together. Help us, O oh God, to so grow in our faith that we would live every day with the knowledge and the remembrance of the promise of the resurrection. Grant, O God, that by your word and spirit we would remember our Savior's resurrection and what it has already meant for us and what it will mean for us as we are raised to live forever in your new creation. We ask in Christ's name, amen.